Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're beginning in chapter 14 of Revelation, listening to the proclamation of the angel and recognizing that we are all without excuse. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our Journey in the Word. Revelation 14, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault and before the throne of God. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, and saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of wrath of God, which is poured out full strength on, into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of the, their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saint, here, saints, and here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God. And give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth the sea and springs of water. I would tell you this is a great Christmas message because I think we have three angels here, right? They're going to make appearances, but they're not quite from the Dickens classic. These angels are of a different venue. And as we look at this, John will talk to us about a number of angels. And the first of of the ones that he now sees is coming to fulfill a very specific purpose on the earth. And the first angel John says he sees and describes has been sent with a twofold purpose. Number one, John tells us that he's been sent with the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. He says that this angel will literally be flying around the skies of the earth. And you will note, we know it's the skies of the earth because this is what the Greek word for heaven that's used here implies. It's not talking about the heavens way out there. It's talking in the actual interpretation of the earth's atmospheres. And so what he's saying is that this angel is literally going to be flying around earth's atmosphere, preaching the gospel to anyone and everyone who will listen. Not a person 
Think about this for a moment. Not a person will be left untold. No more people on those little tiny islands, someplace that everybody always brings up and says, what about the guy or gal out there? Never heard. Listen, without this, this truth is going to be proclaimed and everybody's going to hear this and they're going to see this angel and this message of, of the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ will be preached to them. Now, how many of you have heard of an evangelistic concept called the 1040 window? We don't hear much of that anymore, but it was popular in the 90s as part of missionary ventures. But the 1040 window is a term that was coined by a Christian missionary strategist by the name of Lewis Bush. And Mr. Bush coined this term in 1990, and it refers to that region of the eastern hemisphere located between 10 degrees to 40 degrees north of the equator and extends from North Africa to China. And in 1990s and throughout that time, and I would still argue still today, that area of the world is marked by the highest levels of poverty and social chaos. And, and this is a region of the world that was, and in many cases still is, an area with the least access to the gospel message. Nearly two-thirds of the world's population lives in the region that comprises what's known as the 1040 window. And the people who live there are predominantly Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, um, animist, Jewish, and atheist. And many of the governments in the 1040 window, nations that are they're, they're vehemently opposed to, to, to the Christian work and to the gospel within their nation's borders. So as you can imagine, all of these factors combined have made this region of the world one of the most spiritually dark and lost regions on the face of the planet. At present, it is estimated that 95% of the people who reside in the 1040 window, about 2 billion people or so, have never been reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And many of them have never even heard the gospel preached to them once in their entire life. Now, that concept of the 1040 window had gave rise and really was derived from a passage whereby people began to look and view something that Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14 as, as relevant to missions work. And, and I don't want to take away from that, but, but let me explain. It says in Matthew 24 and verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, we've all heard that used in a missionary context, right? Get out and preach the gospel. And, and look, I don't want to take away from the importance of going into all the world. That is most certainly the great commission that we as Christians have placed upon us by Jesus as believers. We're, we're to go into all the world. We're to reach the lost with the good news of Jesus Christ, especially, we would argue, in a region of the world that, that comprises the least heard of the gospel. We want to reach those areas. Uh, I, I do not want to dispel, you know, this idea of going out, but at the same time, I do want to dispel the misguided notion that we need to reach the whole world before Jesus can come back, which is what people will use this verse to proclaim. Seems to say that, right? This kingdom will be preached in all the world, and then the end, which would imply Jesus' return, will come. And so the idea is we got to get out there and we got to tell people so Jesus can come back. And the truth is the 1040 window or any other area of the world does not need to be reached by us in order for Jesus to return. Even this very scripture that, that these, these 
missionaries use, and I, I would argue somewhat misquote as a motivation for taking the gospel to these regions of the world, when it's read in context, makes it clear that the preaching of the gospel to this region and to the whole world has nothing to do with us, but all to do with God, all to do with him. The passage from which this evangelistic verse comes is a passage of scripture that deals with end time events as Jesus is telling his disciples of all the things that will be happening in the last days of human history, how false messiahs, false prophets, tribulation, judgments will be coming upon the world. And he describes in that passage the very things that John now sees culminating here in the book of Revelation, which Jesus has given to him. And in this context, the evangelistic state of the gospel being preached to the whole world is in fact directly connected to what we're now reading here in chapter 14 of the book of Revelation in regard to this angel. Yes, the gospel will be preached to the whole world, but it'll primarily be preached to the whole world by this angel who John now sees in Revelation 14 flying around the globe proclaiming the gospel and the good news of Christ to a lost and fallen world that is about to incur the worst of God's judgments. This angel will be flying around the globe and proclaiming the truth to every nation, to every tribe, to every tongue and people, and the whole world will hear. And that's what this prophecy is fulfilled, I believe, right here. This Matthew prophecy of this taking place is fulfilled right here in this passage in Revelation. The gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world, and it will be a witness to the nations, not just as a witness because of the message that it contains, but it'll be a witness because of the supernatural way in which God will be preaching it through this angel. You know, it's one thing for, for, for people to take the gospel message to people, but it's quite another thing for an angel to do this. And when people see and hear the gospel message coming to them in this supernatural way from the lips of this angel that'll be flying around the world continually proclaiming it, they'll know that it's coming from God himself and they'll truly be without excuse. It doesn't mean because they hear they're going to receive Remember, this is a world that is already going to see all kinds of supernatural events that they're going to attribute to God. But later, we're going to see repeatedly that they're going to be thumbing their nose at him and shaking their fist at him and grinding their teeth at him. The more pain they endure, the more they're going to shake their fist at him. I don't understand that, but it's what's going to happen. And yet there will be people who will hear. There will be people who will hear. Now, again, I want to stress, I'm not saying we shouldn't go out and evangelize. We should. That's our call. We've been given, that's a completely different section of, the, of Matthew, you know, where, where we're given that commission to go and to preach the gospel. We're to go. We need to do that. But if you and I assume the burden that it's our going that has to happen in order for Jesus to return, I would tell you that's a mistaken notion. God is quite capable of getting this message out to the world. And he will do it in these final days, which to me just speaks of how great his grace and mercy really is that he would do this just preceding this judgment that'll be taking place. And that's also, when you consider this, why this angel also has a second message to proclaim. John tells us that this angel, in addition to preaching the gospel to the, girl, uh, to the world, will also be warning the world of the impending final judgment that God is about to pour out. In other words, having preached the gospel to the inhabitants of the earth, this angel will then be calling for a decision from them. 
He's going to expect a decision from them. He'll be calling them to repent of their sin and their rebellion against God and to give themselves fully to him and to worship him alone while there's still time to do so. John tells us that this angel will be saying in a loud voice, fear God, give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Here is truth in that future day, and and I would argue for our day now. When a person has heard the truth of God, they're accountable before him. They're accountable before him. Once they've heard truth, they're accountable before him. They must do something with the truth that they've heard. When truth is preached and proclaimed, you just can't ignore it and pretend as though you never heard it. God expects you to decide what you're going to do with it personally and then to act upon it. And the truth preached always results in a call to repent and to yield to the truth in your own life personally. Many people try to get out from underneath that requirement, don't they? I mean, I tried to for years, you know, but we try to get out from underneath it. It's why when you share the gospel with some people, instead of evaluating the gospel in terms of their own lives, what do they do? They try to sidetrack the conversation with all sorts of of counter thoughts, counter arguments, counter ideas. They try to shift the focus away from themselves. Well, I don't know if the gospel message is worth thinking about because if the gospel message is true and Jesus is the only way to salvation, then what about those people on the remote island who've never heard? And, and, and what about them? This, you know, like a lot of similar arguments is a classic statement that people use to deflect the application of truth from their own lives. It's not that this and other questions that, that could be raised about this, that they're not legitimate questions to ask, but most of the time, these kinds of questions aren't being raised because people sincerely want to know. They're being raised because People want to sincerely get out from underneath the obligation that God is placing upon them now that they're being presented with the gospel message of truth, you see. Another statement we often hear is, well, I don't know if I buy the gospel message. There are too many hypocrites in the church. Do you ever hear that one, right? Do you you see how that changes the focus, though, doesn't it? It's not about me. It's about all them. It's all about them. I'm getting away from this. You see, they they don't want to be faced with a decision, so they deflect it to others. Listen, I don't know how God will reach all those people on the islands. I do know how he's going to do it in this day. I don't know what he's doing with them now. I just know that God is just and he's fair, and and, and he's not going to condemn someone just arbitrarily. It's not going to happen. You know, I do think we can make a case that when we look at the scriptures, we're told in so many places, if you sincerely seek him, you will find him. You know, look at Muslims today who are coming to faith in Christ because Jesus has personally appeared to him. I believe to them. I believe that Jesus will personally appear to someone who sincerely wants to know him. But he's looking at the heart. He knows whether somebody's sincerely seeking to know him in reality or just seeking a form of spirituality for themselves that will give them some sense of contentment with the direction that they're going. And those are two very different things, right? So I don't have the the lockdown answer. I know people have come up with all sorts of answers. I've read all the answers. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure all of them wash from my thinking. But I do know this. I do know this. That God is just. He is fair, he is merciful, and he will meet anyone who has a sincere desire to know him and to know his truth. 
I also know that there are hypocrites in the church today. There are. But why would this negate the gospel since Jesus came? Because men by nature are sinful hypocrites, right? What do we expect in the church? Jesus said, I didn't come to heal those who who are healthy. I came to reach those that are not, you see. The church, the church is made up of sinfully fallen human beings who, although they may have been delivered from the power of sin through Jesus Christ and have a new heart beating inside of them, inside of us, right? We still bring a lot of sinful baggage with us when we come to Christ. And slowly but surely, he's taking more and more of it off of us as we're yielding to him, taking that fleshy kind of carnality away from us. But you know what? It ain't going to be finished until we stand in his presence. And so there will be hip- people or Christians who are committing hypocritical behaviors in the church, right? It's just natural. The church is a hospital for the broken. It's not a place for, of solid health and, 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 and in this regard, perfection. And this doesn't justify hypocritical behavior, not by any means, but it most certainly does not negate the truth of the gospel. And in fact, it gives, in my mind, even greater justification for the need of the gospel, right? The more I recognize the hypocritical things that I do, the more I fall upon the, the cross of Jesus to, to finish this work in me so that this stuff wouldn't be going on in my life, you see. But when a person has been confronted with the truth of the gospel, the issue isn't the people on the remote island, and it's, it's not the hypocrites in the church, but the issue of truth is with them personally. It's with them personally. When God has given you the truth, you alone, not everybody else, you alone are accountable before him for the truth that he's given you, and he ultimately expects you to make a decision as to what you're going to do with it. And it is your decision to make understanding full well that there are consequences both positive and negative to that decision, you see. And in the end, the Bible says that all of us will stand alone before him. Yes, we're one body, but the truth is when we appear before him, we're going to appear before him individually, and he's going to look at us and ask us what decision we made. And in that moment, we will be without a valid excuse if we've not placed our faith in the truth of the gospel. When God shares truth with you, you are accountable before him for what you choose to do with it. And, and what is the truth which he'll ultimately hold you accountable for? Jesus gave us the answer in John 14, 6, right? John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the what? The truth, there you go. That's the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's the way. There's the truth and there is the life. So the ultimate truth of all human beings that we're accountable to is the truth about Jesus Christ. It's the gospel message, the good news that we've been given about Jesus. He, how he is one with God, how he came to the earth and flesh to walk among us and to ultimately offer himself as the sacrifice for our sins. How he was brutally tortured and, and, and crucified, dying in our place, taking our sins upon himself. And then after three days of laying in that cold, dark grave, how he physically rose from the dead to prove his power over death. And how, how he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven, interceding for those who place their faith in him, making a way for men to return to God and to find fellowship that had been broken and lost because of our sin. And how those who place their faith in him, believing in him, trusting in him as their Messiah and Savior, will absolutely be saved. 
This is the truth that we as human beings are, are accountable for before God, and we can't as- free ourselves of it or escape that accountability, no matter what excuse we might try to offer up. Once that truth has been presented, it's there before us. It's there before us even before it's presented, and God will bring us to some level of knowledge of it, you see. But once we've been confronted with it, we truly are without excuse. And when this day comes, this angel is on the move, the world will be even more accountable, you see. Because not only will they have been confronted with the truth through some humanly devised pamphlet or sermon or missionary outreach program, they'll be confronted with it supernaturally as God will be sending this angel to preach it to them. I think this is cool. I honestly do. I think this is great. And when it comes to this moment in this future day, this will be an incredibly important moment in light of the warning that this angel now goes on to give because shortly the most awful, the most destructive, the most terrifying of the judgments thus far are going to be poured out. The bold judgments will, will make the other judgments look like child's play up to this point. The bold judgments will be so devastating to the earth and to mankind that if Jesus didn't intervene, the Bible tells us that there'd be nothing left for him to return to. That's how devastating it'll be. And, and after the bold judgments are complete and Jesus returns, there will be an even worse fate for those who reject the message of truth about him as he, he will send those who've rejected him into hell itself. Ooh, not a popular discussion these days. Hell, that dirty four-letter word, right? Look, when these, these, this day comes, men will have been given every possible opportunity to receive God, even in the midst of judgment. And when, when these judgments begin, th- th- there'll be no room for sorrow of, of those who will be subjected to him, no room for calling into question God's mercy and grace and love because those who will be subject to these terrible things will have sealed their own fate by rejecting the truth that they have personally and supernaturally been given. It won't be that they didn't get a fair shake. It's not going to be that they didn't have a chance, that they were somehow set up by God and, 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 and to have this fall that he set them up for. Their fate will be of their own choosing. The, the, them more than any other people who have ever lived on the earth will be, out, will be without excuse because not only will they have seen so many of these supernatural evidences of God's reality and power during this time, but God will also ensure that they all will have heard the gospel message preached to them and will even be preached supernaturally. The whole world will hear, and then the end will come, you see. But here's my question. What about you? You know, I make no assumptions, and maybe you all have placed your faith in Jesus. I never make that assumption, even knowing people for years. That's between you and the Lord. And, and I don't know who's out there watching today on live stream, but the question really becomes, what about you? What have you done? Uh, Already this morning, you've heard the gospel preached. I just preached it to you, right? I didn't go off on all kinds of side tangents. I presented the clear gospel message to you. Jesus came in the form of a man to take your sin upon himself. He suffered and he died on the cross for you because God loved you so much that he didn't want you to perish. Even now, he's being patient because he doesn't want any to perish. But that offer of salvation is through Jesus Christ alone. He is the only way, the only truth, the only way to life. It goes through him. That's the only path to God. It's the only one. He's alive. He's been resurrected. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's interceding for those who believe, and he will save you if you call upon his name. So you've heard the gospel. 
I have to warn you that there's no room now for excuse making. None. You've heard it. He'll remind you of this very moment. You know that? He'll remind you of this very moment that he sent me to share with you here today as you stand before him. And if you reject this truth, if you fail to make a decision to accept this truth, there'll be nothing you'll be able to say to defend yourself when you stand before him in that day. Every excuse you have made in order to avoid having to submit to this truth in your own life personally will be thrown back in your face by Jesus in that day. He'll use your own thoughts and words against you to convict you. In that day, it won't be about the guy on the island in the middle of nowhere anymore. And it most certainly isn't going to be about the hypocrites in the church. It's going to be about you. Listen, God loves every human being that has ever been born on this planet. Every single one. He loves each and every person. He loves you so much that he paid the highest price that anyone can pay to bring you the message of good news, of glad tidings, the message of hope, and this offer of eternal fellowship with him. He came to the earth and walked in human flesh so that he could take your place when it comes to your sin. He willingly walked up that hill. He allowed himself to be nailed to the cross, taking upon himself the very sin that you've committed and will commit, taking upon himself the very sin that resides in you by nature as a human being when you were born into this world so that you could be free of it, so that you could be free of it, so that the penalty of your sin would be paid for by someone other than you and so that you could have eternal fellowship with him. And now he's come to you in so many different ways and through so many different people, and he shared the truth of what he's done for you, offering you hope, offering you his love, offering you his fellowship, but now he leaves the decision to you. He's leaving it to you. You have to choose. You have to decide whether or not you're going to accept the truth that he shared with you or reject it, but make no mistake, you must decide. He's holding you accountable to make a decision, and no decision is a decision, you see. You can't excuse yourself out of it in any way, shape, or form, and you can't escape it. And when you stand before him one day, he'll ask you what decision you made. He'll ask you, what did you decide to do with the truth that I shared with you about my son, Jesus Christ? And in that moment, if you have not yielded to that truth, you'll be completely without excuse. I encourage you, don't let another moment go by. Without, without thinking about and, 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 and truly considering what Jesus has done for you and what he's offering to you, quit trying to get out from underneath the mantle of accountability that he's placed upon you. Quit shifting the focus to other things, to other people, and look at yourself in regard to the choice that you're being faced with and in regard to the choices that you're making. Because in the end, it won't be about everybody else. It'll be about you as you stand alone before your Creator. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.